Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Lottie's Book Club. Now, this episode's going to be a little bit different just because I'm not really talking about fiction or nonfiction or fantasy or anything. I'm talking biblical, or should I say non-biblical, because I'm talking about the Apocrypha. Now, I do want to put a little disclaimer in and say that I'm not a theologist. I, you know, I'm a one-woman show. I do my own research, so I might not get everything right and everything accurate. So, this is not for research purposes. This is just for entertainment purposes and my own little brain-picking curiosity. Now, I, I went into a little religion rabbit hole over the summer when I was originally curious about the start of like Judaism separating from Christianity and like how that all started where they kind of went their own ways which somehow turned into a dive into books such as the book of Revelations and the origin of Lucifer and everything in the Bible which led to me stumbling across the Apocrypha. Now, as somebody who attended Catholic school until the end of sixth grade, I never heard about these before. I mean, you have in Catholicism, like, I do remember hearing about Deuteronomy and stuff, which I guess is kind of the Apocrypha, but I, that's all confusing. <laughs> now, but not not even any reference to the books that were excluded, aside from Deuteronomy, which honestly... I would have found religion class a lot more interesting as an 11-year-old if they were telling me about, you know, Revelations and the Apocalypse and Lucifer, but I can understand why they didn't. Revelations is in the Bible, though. It's not an Apocrypha, but I lump it in there in my mind just because the book of Revelations is crazy. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. Now, the Apocrypha consists of... 14 to 15 books that were removed from the Bible in the 1800s. The word apocrypha itself is translated from the Greek word apocryphos, which means to hide away, which is essentially what happened to these books. It was the first, the Protestant church, who decided to exclude these books from the biblical canon, stating that they weren't written by legitimate prophets of God. However, it was long before then that these books started receiving controversy. To understand the Apocrypha, we must understand their different levels. Apocrypha are books that are considered entirely non-canonical, but some faithful still decide to study them. Pseudepigrapha are books that are considered possibly to be have been written by a biblical figure, and deuterocanonical books are Apocrypha that are accepted by some denominations, but not all, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier with Deuteronomy and stuff. Way back when Greek was a widely spoken and understood language in the Mediterranean area, it was needed that the original Hebrew text be translated into Greek for better understanding and easier reading. They did, and this translation is referred to as the Sepulgain, which is the translation of the Old Testament books, some of which were later deemed to be, quote, outside of the Hebrew canon. The Talmud used as the original basis of Jewish beliefs, separates these apocrypha in a section called Seraphin Hizanim. From what I've gathered as someone who runs this one-woman show and is definitely not an experienced biblical researcher, a lot of apocrypha 
seemed to have come up around the early days of Christianity before separate denominations were really an accepted thing, notably around 400 BC and 1 AD, and lots of different books and additions to the Bible were coming up to seemingly further one point of view rather than the other, so basically the origin of denominal pushing-shoving. Most Apocrypha originates between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is where they were originally included in the Bible as their own separate texts in the original King James edition, published in 1611, before their removal in 1885. It's necessary to understand that these books aren't deemed to be bad, they're just deemed to be invalid and come from questionable sources when it comes to Christians. Martin Luther said, Apocrypha, that is, books which are not regarded as equal to the Holy Scriptures and yet are profitable and good to read. Other views on the Apocrypha include that of some denominations. 39 Articles, 1571, Article 6. And the other books, as Jerome said, The church doth read for example of life and instruction of manners, but yet doth it not apply them to establish any doctrine. So basically, you can still read them, but don't take them by word. Belgic Confession, 1561. The church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical books, but they do not have such power and virtue that one could confirm their testimony at any point of faith or of the Christian religion, much less can they detract from the authority of the other holy books. And the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. A lot of Apocrypha are deemed as heretical, but it differs from denomination to denomination. One of the wildest books of the Apocrypha is the Book of Enoch. The first reference to Lucifer incurred in these books, along with other fallen angels, and introduced the ideas of the final judgment day and a, quote, heavenly kingdom on earth. Despite being largely excluded from canonical scripture, the book of Enoch influences a ton of Christian beliefs. Enoch is the great-grandfather to Noah, Noah as in the great ark, who lived for 365 years and never truly died, but was raptured into heaven by God. Let's talk about some of the stories that happen within the book of Enoch. The first that I wanted to talk about is the story of the Watchers. The Watchers are fallen angels of God who he sent down from the heavens to watch over humanity, hence the name. This occurred during the sixth generation past Adam, the first man. Straying from their original duties, these watchers were overcome with lust and decided to bed human women and take lives, creating offspring that are referred to as Nephilim. The Nephilim are giants and were said to be violent with complete disregard for human life. Having committed the great sin of lust, God sent archangels to constrain the watchers to Tartarus, essentially a prison hell for fallen angels. While on earth, the Watchers also taught the humans about various things of science and sorcery. The first thing they showed them was how to shape rocks and metals into various artifacts and weapons. They also taught them ways of cosmetology or beautifying the body, which, if you're curious, is my current profession. I'm a cosmetologist. Um, anyways, 
Some watchers were taught astrology, while others taught knowledge about what we would see as the basics of science these days. Medicine, structures of the clouds, constellations. They all seem like good things to further humanity, so what was the issue? Some of these practices of herbal medicine were seen to be enchantments, or as you probably guessed, witchcraft, which is seen as evil, giving mortals the tools for divination reserved only for gods and angels. The 200 watchers were idolized by the humans, placing them above God in their eyes. So the watchers in all committed sins of lust, witchcraft, and idolatry. Their teachings and influence on humanity were seen to be corrupting, thus landing them in Tartarus. Now, I'm sure most people know the story of Noah's Ark, a holy man who built a massive ark and hauled one of each animal on while God flooded the earth. But what isn't included is his interesting early life. Noah was the great-grandson of Enoch. Yes, the Enoch of the Book of Enoch that I'm talking about. After Noah was born, like literally right out of the womb, he was set to stand up and talk to God, something that obviously confused his father. Enoch came around and shared with Noah's father that he mustn't worry, for Noah will save them all someday. It is then written that Noah shoots rays of light out of his eyes, which were said to carry the power of a star. Now, we all know about my love for Dante's Inferno. I would call it a love-hate, but ever since I finished Inferno, I've been trying to find more literature that just fills the little hole that it left in my soul. But there's nothing that has caught my interest as much as Inferno. It's very obvious that Dante, a Catholic man of the 1300s in Florence, Italy, gained a lot of inspiration from the Bible and different mythologies and theologies while he was writing Inferno. While reading a passage from Enoch, I was reminded a lot about how Dante described hell. Here is Enoch's description. And those men carried me to the northern region, and they showed me there a very frightful place. And all kinds of torture and torment are in that place. Cruel darkness and lightness glooms. And there is no light here. And a black fire blazes up perpetually with a river of fire that comes out over the whole place. Fire here, freezing ice there. And it dries up and it freezes. And the very cruel places of detention and dark and merciless angels carrying instruments of atrocities torturing without pity. And I said, whoa, whoa, how very frightful this place is. And those men said to me, this place, Enoch, has been prepared for those who do not glorify God, whose practice on earth, the sin, which is against nature, which is child corruption. I'm not going to say that. Of witchcraft, enchantments, divinations, trafficking with demons, who boast about their evil deeds, stealing, lying, insulting, coveting resentment, fornication, murder, and who steal the souls of men secretly, seizing the poor by the throat, taking away their possessions, enriching themselves from the possessions of others, defrauding them, who, when they were able to provide sustenance, bring about the death of the hungry by starvation, and, when they are able to provide clothing, take away the last garment of the naked, who do not acknowledge their creator, but bow down the idols which have no souls." which can neither see nor hear vain gods constructing images and bowing down to vile things made by hands, 
for all this place has been prepared as an eternal reward. The first thing that piqued my interest about that was the idea of frozen ice, that of which Dante had filled the lowest, worst, ninth circle of hell for the betrayers. I'm sure this isn't the first reference to hell with inscription, canonical or not, but a lot of Enoch's stories are very apocalyptic, but also address creation. Enoch speaks of Adam and Eve being only seven generations away from Adam himself. God said to Enoch, Adam, mother, earthly, and life, and I created a garden in Eden in the east so that he might keep the agreement and preserve the commandment. And I created for him an open heaven so that he might look upon the angels singing the triumphal song. And the light which is never darkened was perpetually in paradise. And the devil understood how I wished to create another world so that everything could be subjected to Adam on earth to rule and reign over it. The devil is of the lowest places and he will become a demon because he fled from heaven. Satona, because his name was Satanael. It is this way he became different from the angels. His nature did not change, but his thought did, since his consciousness of righteous and sinful things changed, and he became aware of his con- condem- oh my gosh, condemnation and of the sin which he sinned previously. And that is why he thought up the scheme against Adam. In such form, he entered paradise and corrupted Eve, but Adam he did not contact. But on account of her non-science, I cursed him. But those whom I had blessed previously, them I did not curse. And those who I had not blessed previously, even them I did not curse. Neither mankind I cursed, nor the earth, nor any other creature, but only mankind's evil fruit-bearing. This is why the fruit of doing good is sweat and exertion. It then goes on to talk about how Adam's punishment was to return to the earth in which he came from, meaning that he's no longer an immortal being and will someday die. After this talk with Enoch, he brings upon the flood to punish, punish? punish humanity. Now, this episode is very informal and is kind of covering the Apocrypha, but also covering things that I'm just curious about. But the thing I never understood growing up is why God would have flooded the earth and destroyed what he's created. From what I've looked into, this is the understanding that I've gained. I will say I'm not really religious that much at the moment and I don't subscribe to anything. So when I'm saying all of this and continuing on further in this episode, I don't really believe all of this, but I'm just sharing it as someone who shares stories and not sharing it to be like, this is what happens. This is what you should believe in. Everyone can believe in what they want to believe in. I don't care. Like that sounds very mean. I don't mean I don't care in a mean way. I mean, like, I don't mind what you believe in. Like whatever you want to believe in, believe in. Do you do catch my drift? Anyways, after Adam and Eve were cursed to mortality, their line of evil furthered as they birthed Cain and Abel. Cain going on to kill Abel, thus sinning like his parents. As their line grew, the evil was passed down, thus bringing us further away from paradise. In order to make the land more holy, God chose the holiest person, Noah, and essentially killed everyone else off in a flood to rid the earth of evil. That is my understanding. Continuing on with these apocalyptic apocrypha, 
there is the book of Estras, which is arguably more apocalyptic than Enoch. Within the book of Estras, referred to as Ezra, is the Jewish apocalypse. In 2 Ezra 4, he's greeted by an angel offering to share the secrets of why humanity turns to evil if he can answer three riddles. It's kind of funny because I said that this episode isn't like a fantasy one, but doesn't this feel kind of fantasy? Like, answer my three riddles and I will tell you about the, I don't know, nature of evilness. You know, like a little man sitting on a bridge or something. Just me. Okay. When Ezra finds confusion in these riddles, the angel Uriel states that is precisely the point. For just as trees have their place on land and waves have their place in the sea, so the people of this world understand only what goes on in this world, and only heavenly beings can understand what goes on in heaven. He talks about Judgment Day and how humanity had been cursed with the seeds of Adam. When Ezra asks if he will live to see, Ezra shares that he does not know, but he will give him the signs. Well, Uriel shares that he doesn't know, but he will give him the signs. The time will come when all people on earth will be in the grip of great confusion. The way of truth will be hidden, and no faith will be left in this land. Wickedness will increase until it has become worse than you have ever known it to be. The country that you now see ruling the world will lie in ruins, with no inhabitant or traveler there. After that, if God Most High lets you live long enough, you will see that country in confusion. The sun will suddenly start shining at night, the moon in the daytime. Blood will drip from trees, stones will speak, nations will be in confusion, the movement of the stars will be changed." A king unwanted by anyone will begin to rule, and the birds will fly away. Fish will be washed up on the shores of the Dead Sea. The voice of one who many do not know will be heard at night. Everyone will hear it. The earth will break open in many places and begin spouting out flames. Wild animals will leave the fields and forests. At their monthly periods, women will bear monsters. Fresh water will become salty. Friends everywhere will attack one another. Then understanding will disappear and reason will go into hiding. And they will not be found even though many may look for them. Everywhere on earth, wickedness and violence will increase. One country will ask a neighboring country if justice or anyone who does right has come that way. But the answer will always be no. At that time, people will hope for much, but will get nothing. They will work hard, but will never succeed at anything. These are the signs of the end that I am permitted to show you. But if you begin to pray again and continue to weep and fast for seven more days, you will hear even greater things. Ezra, after hearing this, seems to almost be mad at God, constantly asking him why he even created humanity in the first place and gave them the ability to think and reason when they are one day to be destroyed. He remarks that he will save a few and will be happy with the few, as the rest only lived a short life to soon be vaporized by flame. This kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about being descendants of Adam and how humans are cursed with his seeds of evilness and that is what he will return to. 
The books of Ezra and the book of Revelation have a lot in common, sharing the same common themes and symbolism, yet have different ways of getting to the end. In the book of Ezra, there is the Son of Man that comes, whereas the book of Revelations talks about the second coming of Jesus coming to save man. I want to share some stories in the Apocrypha that have to do with us wonderful ladies. In fact, it is said that some Apocrypha were only inserted or written in order to glorify and praise some women in scripture rather than men. First, I will start with the story of Judith, which is canonical in the Roman Bible. This story was said to be written around 160 BC and takes place during war when the land of Judah was being taken under siege. At the time, the king of Assyria sent one of his most favored generals, Holofernes, to take siege of Palestine. Holofernes was warned against this siege, but continued anyways. A Jewish widow under the name of Judith evacuated the city in feigned flight and charmed her way into Holofernes' tent after filling him with stories and prophecies of his victory. While there, Holofernes spent the night drinking and after he passed out, Judith cut off his head in his sleep and brought it back to her town, resulting in the Jewish victory over Assyria. There's also the story of Susanna, in which two elders continued to coerce Susanna into an affair, much to her dismay. When she denied, the elders falsely accused her of adultery in order to have her executed. When Daniel, author of this apocrypha, finds out, he shares their scheme with the public and Susanna is saved. The moral of the story is that although her life was threatened, she remained loyal to God and did not give in to the affair. I would say that a more modern version of the story would be, you know, against false accusations and that we shouldn't give victims or, oh my gosh, we should give victims an open and accepting opportunity to share their experience. Another apocrypha shares the story of Hannah and her seven sons. Each of Hannah's sons were to worship a false idol. One after another, each son denied and were slaughtered in front of their mother, each being skinned and thrown into a frying hot pan. Hannah perished after them, perhaps of heartbreak, and was sent up to heaven alongside her sons. The story is said to take place around 160 B.C., during the start of the religious prosecutions, they were all martyred. I find it interesting as to why these were taken out. Of course, the Apocrypha were taken out due to their invalidity in authorship, but these last few stories would have definitely helped create a more feminine view in the church, especially in denominations where men mainly led as priests and deacons. My grandmother was actually an Episcopalian deacon, so slay my mom, which is interesting because it is said that the Episcopalians and the Angelicans still read parts of the Apocrypha as scripture. So I wonder if having all of these stories of, you know, powerful, godly women help kind of push that narrative of like, hey, women can be in charge. Women can do things. Women are holy too. And which is why they some of them can be priests and deacons, like my mom. Some of these books include stories that are a little a less, less extreme, such as Bell and the Dragon. And by less extreme, I mean like not the apocalypse. In Bell and the Dragon, published in the book of Daniel, 
who wrote about Susanna, townsfolk are worshipping a bronze statue, thus going against God by worshipping false idols. People give the statue offerings, such as food and drink, which are always gone by the next day. Daniel insists that the statue cannot eat or drink, to which the king offers him a deal. If the food and drink is gone within the day, the Daniel's to be put to death, but if it remains, the priests are to be put to death. The king then seals the temple door with his ring in order to see if it remains intact in the morning. When the morning comes, the seal is intact and the offerings are gone, but Daniel has figured out their ruse. The priests were using a secret passage to escape the temple without breaking the seal, and they and their families were consuming the offerings during the night. Once the king figured it out, he sentenced the priests and their families to death, and Daniel destroys the false idol and temple. Now, this message is kind of clear, I guess, about, like, it's interesting to see, like, the messages behind some of these books and how they're interpreted by different denominations, which is honestly, I don't want to go too much into how they're interpreted by different denominations just because I, I don't want to get that wrong because I don't want to be talking about people's beliefs and then get their beliefs wrong and then just be spreading false information about that. But I think it's interesting how like there's all these books that were originally biblical canon and then now they're like some aren't canon, some are canon. It's just it's so interesting. And some Bibles still include like a little section, even if they're not canon, that are for the Apocrypha, which are usually in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's something that I find really interesting because as I'm going through my life and like figuring out what I believe in, whether it be organized religion or kind of where I am now where I'm spiritual, but I don't really subscribe to anything. Um, but as someone who's gone through Catholic school for years and years and, you know, I've been to church. I haven't been to church and since I was like 11 or 12, like in Catholic school, but it's just interesting. Like all this stuff, they never really teach you. Like, I feel like I learned the same stuff over and over again, which is okay, but I definitely would have been a lot more interested in religion and theology and everything if they told us about more of this stuff. But I think it's cool because it just goes to show like how different stories can, I guess, influence beliefs and how different stories have different meanings to them and I think it's really interesting because sometimes I just think like I'm gonna try to phrase this right the bible while being a center of beliefs for a lot of people which is okay you know that's good it is stories by different authors that have different meanings. And I was talking to my mom one day, mainly when I was getting into my little hole about the book of Revelations and like the apocalypse and how like different creatures come out and different plagues take over the world during that time and Judgment Day and everything. And I was like, are there people who um, view it literally 
where there are there are some people who view view it literally but there's also a lot of symbolism whereas it may not be literal but it's to be taken with different symbols and i think that's really cool because that's you know what we do not i guess not everyone but what i like to do with like different literature in general is kind of look at the themes behind it look at the symbolism because that's what stories are like a lot of mythology too you know isn't to be taken literally or it is to be taken literally but whether it be you know taken literally or not there is a lot to be taken out of it that is symbolism that you kind of you're supposed to not you're supposed to I'm like dancing around my words on this one (laughs) but you you kind of take your own meaning because I kind of think what Oscar Wilde thinks a little bit where it's like I have I have a tattoo of him that it's um it's is it the spectator and not life that art truly mirrors which I think I think it's nice because when you look at art and you look at scripture and you look at literature you gain your own meaning from it and I think it's different person to person which is why a lot of us have different beliefs and because we're different people and we've lived different lives but that's the cool thing about literature is the symbolism and the different meanings behind it and that that was a whole tangent that I just went on but I'm talking about the bible which is often interpreted in many different ways so that's today's episode we were a little bit shorter but that's okay it's something that I wanted to talk about but I can't really dive too deep into apocrypha just because I'm not you know a theological scholar and I'm a one-woman show and I do my own research and I write my own stuff and I I not film I, I record my own podcast, so I I don't have the facilities to be providing you with that in-depth research, but I'm glad I could do a little, um, a little loose coverage on it, because I think it's really interesting. But yeah, I'm glad I got to do that, though, because I am reading um, more stuff. Luckily, I'm filming this at home, so I can go grab when I'm reading. Hang on. I'm looking for my books. Did you guys like that? My my hold music. Okay, I found the books. They're um. I'm sorry, I cracked myself up. I have Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I also have um John Milton's Paradise Lost, and I have Metamorphosis by Ovid. Which, I guess, not really meditations is, but metamorphosis and paradise lost are based kind of off of um, scripture, and paradise lost covers a lot about um, like the Garden of Eden and I don't know Satan and stuff. And then Ovid kind of covers like it. It co- it mm, it has a lot about from. I can't do words today. It has some stuff about like the creation of the world and like mythology. So less of like theology, but they're both based 
off of, you know, beliefs that whether it be from mythology or religion, stuff that can be taken literally or not literally, you know, it can be taken person to person, however you take it based on the person that you are, which is kind of what I was just talking about, which I'm hopefully going to knock these bad boys out during break. And because that's what I'm on now, it's winter break, guys. Yay! Four weeks of doing nothing. Woohoo! Um, anyways, hopefully I'm going to knock these bad boys out and do some episodes on them. I also have more classics that I want to cover, like mainly Jane Austen. I want to talk about um, Sense and Sensibility and also Pride and Prejudice just because I love Pride and Prejudice, which I was actually at a thrift store this morning and I found Pride and Prejudice, get this, in Mr. Darcy's perspective. Pride and Prejudice, but Mr. Darcy's point of view, which isn't written by Jane Austen. It's like a retelling, but off of somebody else's, um, I forget the author, but it's not Jane Austen who wrote it. But I think that's really cool. So I hope you enjoyed this whole tangent I just went on. But I also hope you enjoyed this episode because I find this kind of stuff really interesting and I like seeing how it influences beliefs and religions and just, you know, that kind of stuff. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I may or may not see you next week because it's Christmas, but I will try to get you some content. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. I love you all.